Film director Christopher Nolan calls J. Robert Oppenheimer the most important person who ever lived. From the moment Nolan read a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography about the director of the Manhattan Project Laboratory who developed the first atomic bomb used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He wanted to tell his story, and it's the story of a complicated man who was once the most respected scientist in the world but would be caught up in the McCarthy-era anti-communist hysteria and die a broken man. Oppenheimer, the movie, opened this weekend, blowing past box office expectations. The film is inspired by American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. The book is the result of more than 25 years of research and a collaboration between the late Professor Martin Sherwin and Kai Bird, who is the executive director of the Leon Levy Centre for Biography. And he joins me now. Hello there. Hello, Jesse. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, really nice to talk to you. What a privilege. This book was a long time coming, huh? Started with uh, Marty, who started work on this back in 1980, and there were thousands and thousands of government documents uh, about Oppenheimer. Did he find this a, a, a daunting, or too daunting a task to do on his own? Well, it was. Uh, it, he was in love with the project, I should say, and. He's a he was a terrific writer. Uh, he just got what we call in the business biographer's disease, <laughs> which is when you know it's when you can't stop researching because there's always one more archive to visit, one more interview to be done <laughs> before you can start to write. <laughs> and so he did this for twenty years, gathering fifty thousand pages of oh archival documents and interviewing maybe 150 people. And uh, finally, he came to me in in the year 2000 after 20 years, and we'd become friends and colleagues. And he said, Kai, if you don't join me on this project, my gravestone is going to read, he took it with him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Marty was a very funny, sardonic fellow and uh i really enjoyed his company and i'm terribly sad that he's not here to enjoy the the hoopla surrounding the film but yeah. he you know we got we i joined and it still took us another five years to write the the book and uh it came out in 2005 you know 18 years ago mm. And uh, then won the Pulitzer, and uh, along came came uh, Christopher Nolan in the fall of twenty one, and he announced he had picked up the film option and had written the screenplay, and here we are. And your co-author said that you you wouldn't have spent so much time on the man's life if it was just a story about the father of the atomic bomb. Can you give us a bit of an outline of the rest of Oppenheimer's story? Yeah, you know, most people, I suppose, if they know anything about Robert Oppenheimer, they know that he's the father, so-called, of the atomic bomb. He was the scientific director at Los Alamos, hired at the age of 38. Um, and uh, then he produced, along with his team, uh, the gadget in two and a half years, tested it at Trinity in, on July 16th, 1945. 
And, uh, you know, he, he then becomes America's most celebrated scientist in 1945 on the cover of Time and Newsweek and Life magazine and, uh, you know, a celebrated scientist. And then what is interesting about him is that nine years later, he's brought down in this sort of kangaroo court mm-hmm. session of a security hearing, uh, stripped of his security clearance. Um, and publicly humiliated. And he becomes the chief sort of celebrity victim of the McCarthy era. Yeah. So his life story is just fascinating. Uh, and, and it has some lessons for our current, current political divisiveness here in America. I think you gave uh, Nolan a bit of advice on how to attack the story of Oppenheimer. Well, when I first met Nolan, uh, he had written a screenplay, but he wasn't sharing it with anyone. He was keeping it confidential. But he allowed me to interrogate him uh, uh, about what was and what was not in the movie, in the screenplay at that point. And I, I just, I, I did suggest to him that I thought that any film rendition of the Oppenheimer life story had to focus quite a bit on the trial on the 1954 security hearing and of course if you've seen the movie it does indeed do that um you know my marty when i joined him my co-author he he at one point turned to me and he said kai you know you and i would not be spending all these years on this project if it was just a story about the Manhattan pro- project, mm. if it was just a story about, you know, the, the father of the atomic bomb building this terrible weapon of mass destruction. What makes it a, a human story and gives it an arc as such is that, uh, you know, he was brought down and humiliated in, a, in sort of a Shakespearean manner. And why this happened and his reaction to the trial is uh, a very human story. Can I ask, the guy who was responsible for taking away his security credentials, Louis Strauss, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, he was trying to silence Oppenheimer, really, um, when Oppenheimer raised concerns about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Can I ask, is he as good, or was he as good a villain in real life as he was in the movie? (laughs) Yeah, he's an excellent villain. And... um, (laughs) He's excellent in that he's uh, both in the book and I think even in the film played very dramatically by Robert Downey Jr. Uh, You know, he comes across as human. You understand that he's uh, he's a man filled with insecurities. He had never he had finished high school, but he'd never gone to college. And here he is in the presence of Robert Oppenheimer, one of the great quantum physicists of the 20th century. And uh, he's, he's insecure. He's got a big ego, Louis Strauss does, but he's very sensitive to the slightest uh, insult. Or, and, and this is what Oppenheimer does. With, he has a tendency to be very sweet and patient with his students and yet uh and even 
strangers he meets in the street or such. He can he can be very charming. But when he encounters people in authority, in positions of authority, or people who uh, presume to be on his level, he could be very slighting and dismissive and even rude. And so he was rude to Louis Straws over several years, and Straws took this these insults personally. Hmm. And they also had policy disputes. You know, they were... Uh, Straws was convinced that America should be building more nuclear weapons, and specifically the hydrogen bomb, the superatomic bomb, uh, super hydrogen bomb. And Oppenheimer was opposed to this. He thought it was insanity to build thousands of these weapons of mass destruction, that they had no real military utility. And uh, so... Oppenheimer's going public about his criticisms of these policies was a real threat to the American defense establishment, to the budgets of the Army and the Air Force and the Navy, who all wanted to build more of these weapons. Mm. Uh, And so the Eisenhower administration made a decision to sort of defang Oppenheimer, and uh, they used Louis Strauss's animus, personal animus towards Oppenheimer, to uh, allow Straws to orchestrate this security hearing, to appoint the panel, to stack the deck against Oppenheimer. And it it's just, it's as I said, it's a Shakespearean story. Yeah. Um, was, were his um, communist connections, um, however indirect, were they something that the administration had in its back pocket intentionally as something they knew they would have against him if they ever needed it? Oh, I think that's a little too Machiavellian. Uh But certainly, you know, Oppenheimer in the 1930s, in the midst of the Depression, became politically active, Um, not in a major way, but like any university professor at Berkeley in those days, he was a man of the left. And uh, he contributed as much as $400 a year to uh, projects and causes of the, that were sponsored by the Communist Party. Things as mundane as trying to integrate the local public swimming pool in Berkeley or raising money to send an ambulance to the Spanish Republic in the midst of their civil war. Um, but he never joined the party. Uh, you know, the, there's his FBI file is 8,000 pages long, and there's no smoking gun to show that he ever submitted himself to party discipline. But he was surrounded. I mean, many of his friends were party members. His brother Frank joined this Communist Party. His wife Kitty had been a member before he met her and fell in love with her. Um, and uh, the, all these sort of communist associations were used by straws against him. I'm talking to Kai Bird. He is executive director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography and co-author of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Kai, could the bomb have been built without him? Oh, you know, someone was going to build this gadget. Um, but everyone we interviewed who worked with Oppenheimer at Los Alamos in the years 
from late 42 to 45, all explained that he was a brilliant, though improbable choice on the part of General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project who selected Oppenheimer. Uh, you know, Oppenheimer had never managed anything more than a handful of graduate students at Berkeley, but he turned into a extremely charismatic leader. Uh, he was a great synthesizer. He was the uh, quantum physicist who could speak in plain English. Oppenheimer was a polymath. He loved the novels of Ernest Hemingway and the poetry of T.S. Eliot. He wrote poetry himself. He stumbled into a fascination with Hindu mysticism and read the Bhagavad Gita in the original, meaning he learned Sanskrit so that he could read it in the original. Uh, you know, he was a wonderful raconteur um, and uh, turned into a terrific leader. And everyone at Los Alamos told us that, you know, the bomb never would have been built in two and a half years if someone else had been selected. So we don't know, but that seems to have been the truth of the matter. You know, it's one thing to capture a man's life in a book or in a film, but it's another to explain quantum physics to a broad audience. Do you think the film did a good job, an elegant job of doing that? <laughs> you know, no one can, can can explain quantum physics to a broad audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the guy who, uh, in college, I took uh, physics, but it was called Physics for Poets. <laughs> and uh you know we we have a description of what Oppenheimer was working on as a young man in his 20s and 30s dark uh you know black hole theory and such um and i think the film captures like the book the spirit of you know the excitement surrounding the discovery of this new physics and it it you know, is is uh, it, it it paints a picture in uh, with music and uh, and the colors and the stars, and you you get a sense at least of the excitement that the that people like Oppenheimer who were on the cutting edge of quantum physics in the 1920s and how they felt about it. But I wouldn't claim that the film or the book will uh, explain quantum. <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards, after the bomb was used, of course, he felt he had blood on his hands, and he told um, President Harry S. Truman that. Truman called him a crybaby. Did, right. did that happen, and, and what does that exchange reveal about both men and, and that post-war world? Yes. Uh, you know, the astonishing thing for me is the biographer when in viewing this film is to see how much of it is, you know, really right out of the book and grounded in historical reality. Yes, Oppenheimer had one meeting with President Truman in October of 1945, and he it was his one opportunity to explain to the President of the United States that uh, these weapons were not weapons of defense and that they were weapons that should be contained and regulated and there should be international controls put on over their 
development and uh, that atomic energy should be controlled by an international atomic authority. Well, he goes into the Oval Office and he begins to make this pitch and Harry Truman interrupts him. And we know this from uh, memos and diaries of people who were witness to this conversation, uh, including Truman himself has written about this. And Truman interrupts Oppenheimer and says, well, Dr. Oppenheimer, please tell me, when do you think the Russians are going to get the, the atomic bomb? And Oppenheimer stumbles, hesitates, and replies, well, sir, I'm not quite sure, but in, in a few years. And Truman replies, no, I know, never. Hmm. So at that moment, Oppenheimer understands that the president of the United States does not understand that there are no secrets to this weapon. The physics is known. It's been discovered. It's known to every physicist in the world. And uh, as Oppenheimer was giving us, you know, was saying to audiences that autumn, this is a uh, weapon of terror. And you may think that it is cheap, it is expensive because it costs $2 billion, but uh, it, it, it's actually quite cheap in any country, however poor that wants it, can develop it. Anyway, Truman didn't understand any of this. Uh, and so in frustration, Oppenheimer sort of does ex and says the, exactly the wrong thing to the president of the United States, the man who actually made the decision to drop two atomic bombs mm. on two Japanese cities. He says, well, sir, I think we have blood on our hands, or I have blood on my hands. And, you know, Truman is offended by this and quickly ends the meeting, as it's depicted in the film quite accurately. Mm. And on his way out, Oppenheimer goes out, and on his way out, Truman turns to an aide and says, I don't want to see that crybaby scientist ever again. So, you know, he Oppenheimer blew his one chance but uh, so did Truman. <laughs> <laughs> and Oppenheimer, sadly in a way, lived long enough to see several uh, countries develop their own bomb. Um, you spoke to his grandchildren, the son and daughter of his only surviving child, Peter, and, and they actually believed that Oppenheimer's speeches against nuclear weapons and their proliferation set him free in a way even if it cost him his reputation and his security clearance. Did, did you see evidence of that in your research? Well, yes. You know, from 1940 on, Oppenheimer spent the rest of his life trying desperately to make people understand, uh, both the general public but also policymakers, to understand the nature of these weapons. And, you know, he he explicitly said that these are weapons for aggressors, they're not defensive weapons. They're weapons of just absolute terror. And he even goes on in one speech, he says, you know, they're weapons that were used in the first instance on an already defeated enemy. And that's an astonishing thing for the father of the atomic bomb to say, but it, it it's quite an accurate description of reality. And Oppenheimer believed that these weapons should be internationalized, that the bomb should essentially be banned, and that technology should be controlled and regulated. 
and that we should not be get into an arms race with the Soviets. And uh, of course, his advice was rejected and ignored. And uh, America alone has spent oh, trillions of dollars on these weapons. And we're still spending a trillion dollars in the next 10 years to modernize our nuclear arsenal. It's an astonishing amount of money. And it, he would argue today, if he was still with us, that it's, it's all for nothing, it's a waste, and it's dangerous. You know, the bomb has not been used since 1945, but that doesn't mean that the story is over. It could still end badly. And we now are witnesses to a terrible war in the Ukraine. And the Russian uh, dictator, Vladimir Putin, is, is not so, in not so veiled threats, he's talking about using tactical nuclear weapons. So uh, it's, we're still in a very dangerous moment. Just wanted to mention before you go that 68 years after Oppenheimer's death, the U.S. government actually cleared his name and acknowledged that he should never have had his security credentials revoked. And you were a big part of the campaign for that. Yes. After the book came out uh, in 2005, Marty and I thought, you know, we, we really ought to try to persuade the government to do the right thing. And so we wrote some letters and memos and and actually lobbied for 12 years um, to try to persuade the various administrations here in Washington to nullify the 1954 decision, uh, simply on the grounds that they had, uh, that the Atomic Energy Commission had violated their own rules and procedures for such a security hearing, and that it uh, that Oppenheimer was unjustly tarnished. And uh, finally, last December, the current Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, in a rather courageous decision, virtually overruled her own department lawyers and issued an executive order nullifying the decision of 1954. So, you know, the, the the story has come full circle for the history books, and that's a good thing. People learning about this story for the first time will see the final chapter and um, and see you know see that Oppenheimer was convicted as such in in a in a kangaroo court. What a pleasure to talk to you. Can, can I ask if you're working on a biography now? I'm always working on a biography. <laughs> My last biography was on Jimmy Carter yeah. about two years ago. And I'm now working on a new biography of Roy Cohn, who was the chief counsel to Senator Joe McCarthy huh. at the height of McCarthy witch hunts. Yeah, And interestingly enough, he became uh, a friend and, and lawyer to a young New York City real estate developer named... <laughs> Trump. <laughs> and, and he was Donald Trump's lawyer from 1973 until he died of AIDS in 1986. Still in the closet, by the way. 
Um, so this is a uh, different kind of story, a very colorful story, but a story about an, another iconic figure in American history. Fantastic. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jesse. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Kai Bird, uh, the book we've been talking about is American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer.